Welcome to the Yoga Therapy Hour podcast with Amy Wheeler. We're a global community of yoga therapists and related professionals who are sharing our knowledge and experience with one another to make the world a better place for all of us to thrive. On this podcast, we have deep and thought-provoking conversations that we hope will nourish you and make you feel more connected to yourself and to others. Feel free to continue these conversations on our private Facebook group called Yoga Therapy Hour Podcast with Amy Wheeler. And listen at the end of the podcast each week as we'll be giving away a special gift. Remember, we have a mobile app coming out May 2nd, 2022 that tracks mental health and so much more using the foundations of yoga and Ayurveda. Welcome to this electrifying conversation with Dr. Stephen Porges. It was so electrifying that my power went out <laughs> just at the end of the interview. So if you happen to be watching the video version of this, you can see that I have a flashlight <laughs> on my face to be able to do this introduction. So as I said, it was electrifying. It was a really, really deep and important conversation that I, I hope you'll stop and listen to what he is saying. To me, this talk is the essence of why polyvagal theory is so important to yoga therapy. It really is an active discussion of what's happening to people in real time in life that's causing everything from anxiety to depression to chronic disease pathology, such as chronic pain, autoimmune, and many other physiological things in our body. One of the things that we didn't quite get to, but I, I just want to use as a setup for this is something that I read in an article, which I'll put in our free gift package. Some of you know that each week we are giving a free gift that corresponds to what we talked about. So I'll be giving this article out if you sign up for the free gift and you can see that in the show notes, there's a place to subscribe. And this article that I'm going to post as the gift talks about how the nervous system has two paths that trigger a healing or not so healing mechanism. So one of the pathways that we can trigger healing and also the reverse is passive. And it's something called neuroception. And these are the physiological feelings and sensations that your body is trying to talk to you with to let you know that it is sensing danger. And many of us have become very, very disconnected from those physiological signals telling us there's danger. Now, it's a whole nother question of whether there actually is danger or not, right? As we know, when someone has a trauma history, their nervous system will pick up danger through neuroception when there really is no danger, right? So that's number one. Neuroception is telling you a message which may or may not be true. 
And the reason that this pathway can be so effectively used to trigger healing is that when you come into contact with someone who does have a nervous system that is in homeostasis most of the time, that is resilient, that has signals coming out of it, telling you it is safe. You are safe with me. And then of course the student or the client is picking up that through their neuroception. I am safe. This person is safe. That's what relationship is. That's how the healing relationship happens. And I think in the case of most trauma therapy, but also yoga therapy, number one, the yoga therapist has to do their daily practice to keep their nervous system in balance. And it has to be so strong and resilient that even when they get a client in front of them that has a very strong neuroceptive response to say, this is dangerous. I can't trust this person, even if it's not true, right? Their nervous system may be making that up for them to try to keep them safe. The yoga therapist's nervous system has to be so strong that it can hold the space for both so that that big release of energy, that feeling of unsafe, that distrust, maybe even defensiveness can come up and emerge and be released in a titrated way through asana, through pranayama, through chanting, through visualization, through relationship. That's the whole goal. That's what we're doing right? So number one, yoga therapist, get out there and do your daily practice because you're going to have to hold the neuroception for both parties until the client can jump in and, and manage their own nervous system. But as I started out saying, the nervous system has two paths that are going to trigger this neural mechanism of healing. And the second one is more active. We said the first one was passive neuroception. The second one is more active, conscious volitional behaviors that you choose to do. And yoga therapists would call this our toolbox, our pranayama, our mantra or chanting, our ability to get people to bring their mind back into their body, especially in the subdiaphragmatic area where the, the trauma response tends to kind of cut us off, you know, between the mind and the body. And I love what Dr. Porges said in this talk that we had, that that needs to be titrated, right? That re-emergence of bringing the mind and the body back together, especially in the subdiaphragmatic region, that needs to be titrated and contained and titrated and contained. And in, in yoga therapy, we call this krama, just a little tiny step, step by step. And so I think as a yoga therapist, you know, at the optimal state yoga therapy school, we specialize in mental health, trauma, anxiety, depression, all of these types of things. We are teaching our yoga therapist how to go in very slowly and notice the subtle cues and notice if it's too much or too little and how to back off and how to bring people, you know, if they do eject from their body, how to slowly bring them back, not only through the passive neuroception of relationship, but also titrating using these tools of conscious volitional behaviors, such as pranayama and asana, and, and not just throwing out asana for XYZ, or this posture will work to do this. No, how does this posture or this pranayama work on this 
client. And even though it worked last Thursday, their nervous system is reattuned this week because of something that happened at work. And maybe it's not okay this week. And that going back and forth and training each other on how the nervous system functions so that they can start to take ownership and empowerment for their own nervous system and realize how to bring it back to a space of feeling more safe first in the relationship of the yoga therapy session, but eventually in life in general. So the example I give is every time I come home from a really hard day at the university, I need an hour or two to recenter my nervous system through pranayama, through mantra, through meditation, and oftentimes through movement. I, I need a discharge. All of that stress and tension that's held in my viscera needs to be released, right? So I'm, I'm very fortunate to have a very calm home life and supportive husband who gives me that time every single day to get that nervous system back into balance. And Stephen talks about that a little bit, the importance of if you're in a very stressful you know, work environment, what's happening at home? Do you have the chance to recalibrate once you get home? So I think this interview is so amazing. I am so thrilled you're here to listen. And I introduce you to Dr. Stephen Porges. Welcome, Dr. Porges. It's so nice to be with you this morning. Thank you for coming. Well, thank you for inviting me, Amy. It's a pleasure to be here. I've been looking forward to speaking with you for months. And one of the first questions I want to ask you is something I've been curious about for a long, long time, having been a college professor for 25 years now. How was it being kind of a unicorn in academia where you were maybe 25, 30, 40 years ahead of where academia might be. How has it been for you? Well, you know, what I always say, it's been an interesting journey. It, it, overall, it's been a good journey, but there's been a lot of frustration. I mean, we enter academics with a naive viewpoint mm. that, you know, information, knowledge, or truths are, in a sense, self-evident. They become evident, and that's what people want. And we forget that People are people. Basically, they don't like uncertainties. So when you violate their preconceived views of the world with new ideas or theories or data even, they're uncomfortable. And you have to, I think polyvagal theory explains the journey because people gravitate mm. to safety and predictability, especially if they're under threat. And I bring that latter point up because to find the academic environment, it's chronic threat. It's evaluation all the time. And so your nervous system, and not just yours, the nervous system of your colleagues are really retuned to be defensive. You may see it as aggressive or less compassionate or caring but or self-serving. But when a nervous system is under threat, it has to take care of itself. And that's the world of academics. It's basically, that's how it's taught. You have to sense, take care of yourself. And the problem with that is it's kind of contradictory to the human spirit or the human genetics even, which is co-regulation to connect, to feel safe in the presence of others and to be on, I would say, collaborative joint journeys of exploration. And that's was my dream of what academics would be. I thought it would be this kind of co-ed, uh, I was going to use the term fraternal, but that's not really what it's, but it's a, a co-ed society in which the values were all being directed towards 
learning and knowledge and making the world a better place. And what you learn over time is that the principles of a poorly run business are the principles of how universities are organized. When I use the term poorly run, it's about bottom line that you really are looking at the cash flow, whether it's number of students or student tuitions you generate, or in the world that I was in would be how much grant money you bring in. It was very, very pragmatic. And started when I entered academics, it started off with a great vision in which impact and recognition, changing the area, changing the field was the most important point. But it basically shifted into how much money do you have? So it's been an interesting journey. But the bottom line is when you are, let's say, aware of what's going on and you realize that you, even being in this, quote, hostile environment, you are given privileges, you're given flexibilities and freedoms that you can explore, that you can uh, deal with it. So when I mentor junior faculty, which I still do, I use this kind of phrase, you have to feed the beast. So it means you have to know what the demands are and feeding the beast is you have to generate your money. You have to, you have to publish, you have to write your grants. And what I used to say is I do feed the beast, but I reserve a portion of myself for the creativity. And I feel very fortunate. I reserved enough of that to be exploratory and creative. It's, so that part I really feel good about. It's so interesting that it is through feeding the beast that you get to reserve that place yeah. inside of yourself and in your work. Mm. And I think that juxtaposition, you know, most of us want safety and security hundred yeah. percent of the time. And we don't realize that life is both. Yeah. Life is you know both. And the other part is it requires, I mean, we all want to be taken care of. I used to think of the Sherlock Holmes who had a Mrs. Hudson who did the, the housework and kept his apartment, you know, as kind of the ideal that you want someone to take care of you, whether it's a mother or a Mrs. Hudson. But the idea is life isn't about that. You have to often structure your world so that you have the resources to explore. If that is your, your desire, if that's your goal. When I think back, I think the most, I mean, when we look back at our lives, and I'm talking about a long time, over 50 years as an academic, and so I say life through the rear of your mirror, what's it look like? Mm. And what are the surprises? Well, the surprise to me is looking from this you know, mature adult, looking back at the young adult and saying, where did the boldness come from? Mm. And, and it, you know, because we all think, especially the world is very much about attachment theory and good parenting and all that. And, you know, basically I would say it was good enough. <laughs> you know, this is like the world. We all come from challenged environments. Mm. So it was good enough. And the issue is when are you back inside your body to start making the decisions on your life to do things. So when I look back, I say, well, that was a gutsy guy, young guy, you know, you know, how did he know? I mean, he could have been burnt, you know, but mm. it, it was an interesting journey. And I think we internalize our roles for ourselves. We create our own narrative. And part of it was I didn't have a safety net. Mm. I, you know, so meaning I didn't come from wealth. Uh, if I flamed and flamed out, you know, I was on my own. Mm. 
I had a wife who was a very talented scientist who's, you know, internationally renowned, Sue Carter, who you mentioned, and uh, I actually should interview. Who, who, I would love who, to. <laughs> who discovered the link between oxytocin and social behavior. So we had this, this, this re- remarkable parallel career, but we got married. You know, now it, it, it seems very young. We were 25, we were married. And so we had to create this complicated world of two academic professionals. And we had our kids and we had our parents were aging out. So basically we had a lot of responsibilities over time, but it was, it was an interesting journey. I mean, it was really, I would say, extremely uh, fortunate journey because, you know, we've, we've done good things. We've had a good mm-hmm. relationship and we watched with a great smiles of what our kids are doing. And I think that's where the real sense of gratitude in life comes when you feel, okay, didn't do the best job, but it did a good enough job. And watching the kids and watching our granddaughter just, you know, life could be in a sense better. We couldn't map it out better. I have a very similar path to you. So I'm really Mm. resonating with all that you're saying. And I just want to be clear. It sounds to me like you're saying the boldness came from kind of being on your own. You got to get it done as well as finding this little area within academia where you could be bold and creative because you, you had created a little safety net for yourself as a professor. Well, the the boldness is still the part that I kind of think about because it means that you go out and you give talks, you are convinced that your findings are good or real or valid. There's no fraud in you. It's an accessibility and authenticity. It just, I would say it was almost natural. So it wasn't like it was any type of scripted or planned. I didn't, my father and mother were not, you know, college professor. So I didn't, uh, it was not a model that I, I didn't really model on it. I just lived it. And I think the real important point is taking for me and for my wife is uh, taking responsibility for ourselves at a relatively early age and being able to have sufficient opportunities that generate sufficient resources to live a good life. Now, this is not available to everyone. When I kind of tell my story as an academic, you know, and tell people that I was 25 and they on a tenure track, well, that's not usually a viable thing now. There are a few. And then at the age of 30, I was a tenured associate professor, secretary treasurer of international society and had a research scientist development board from National Institutes of Mental Health. These are not, in a sense, things that normally occur within the time frame now. But, you know, sci- I was going to say science was new. <laughs> you know, it was mm-hmm. like, and the areas of neuroscience were expanding. And so the new ideas were much more welcome. This is part of what I want to say, especially in the areas of the clinical sciences, the senior people in psychiatry or pediatrics used to be very interested in what I was doing when I was in my twenties, they were oh, interested because they were explorers. And I don't think that occurs now. So, you know, when I look at the timelines of what I was able to accomplish, the accelerated bit, for me, it was a no choice. Either I did that or I would, in a sense, fall into uh, literally an abyss. I wouldn't be able to differentiate myself as a successful person. But those, you know, it's, it's really, I would say, 
almost an accident of the time of when I became a scientist. And I think we have to understand that, quote, the neurosciences wasn't even identified as a right. discipline then. And what was just starting as neuroscience was physiological psychology or psychophysiology. Those were new disciplines and they were intriguing. And so that's where I went in. So I went into a new area that was fertile for my thinking and welcoming for for who I was. I don't think those type of, of opportunities exist now. Wow. It's a different, different, different world. And how did you first think about polyvagal theory? Like what, what happened that gave you that aha moment that, oh, this might be something? Well, it, it's really the solution to a problem. So we have to think of ourselves as problem solvers, as a species. And as a scientist, you learn to be a scholar. At least you should learn to be a scholar. And when you have a problem, the first thing is not to, in a sense, guess something out of the, uh, we would say out of the cloud now, we used to be out of the ether. It's, it has to, we don't guess, we really get the information that we can get and we infer from existing information to create a viable model. So polyvagal theory to me, it was really, I, I use the term derivative. I thought it was the natural thing that comes from the literature. It took actually uh, over a decade for me to acknowledge that it was in a sense innovative and novel and a new way of mm. conceptually conceptualizing basically uh, mammalian living systems. It was not within my realm to label in that way. It was much more within my realm to see it as based upon foundational knowledge, and this is just the next step. And wow. the problem that I was facing that led me to ask the questions that led to the theory was why does the heart rate under vagal control in newborn and preterm babies, when it goes slow and you can kill you, it's vagal. Mm. And when it's protected with respiratory rhythms and the heart rate pattern, which are also vagal, it's protective and a sign of resilience. How can the same nerve reflect two different adaptive reactions? And the answer was really simple is what I'm going to say, because it wasn't the nerve, it was going through the nerve. The nerve mm -hmm. was a conduit and there were basically different pathways coming from different areas of the brain. And mammals basically had a two vagal system they yeah, had the poly. poly, right? And poly also with vagal sensory. So it's really a tripartite vagus, not a unitary nerve. We were externalizing the sheath, the coating, the conduit as if it had executive functions. We were thinking that the functional aspect of the vagus was the nerve itself and not the pathways embedded in it and where those pathways came from. And what the theory evolved into understanding was that some of those vagal pathways come from area of the brain that regulate our voice, our facial expression, and our ability to listen to each other. So it became our social engagement system was linked in the brainstem to our calming system, to this newer uh, and homeostatic system, the newer mammalian vagus. And in the world of yoga, this is an easy slide. Ah. Uh, it's really pranayama yoga, because in the understanding of what pranayama yoga is about and the exercises, 
they're exercises of the social engagement system to promote neural exercises of a calming mechanism. Now you can reverse it and get yourself energized, but you can also have the resilience to turn the system back on. So it was a problem solving agenda that resulted in it. But it was, here's the, the part that I still, I kind of like sit back and have this kind of grin or smile. And that is once it was framed, it was able now to lead me into different levels of questions and to learn. the theory could actually teach me because it was a framework and it was a framework based upon our neural anatomical evolution. How did we change and how did asocial reptiles turn into social mammals? And it occurred when their ability, their brainstem changed so they could turn off their threat reactions. And in, I'm going to again go to the world of yoga. I would say most or many of people going in, if you, in sense, categorize yoga therapy as opposed to going to yoga, people go there because they want to have a toolkit for regulating their state. They want to be able to turn right. off the threat reactions in their body, whether you call it anxiety or stress, which I view as, as misdirections, what we really should be talking about, our body has disrupted its homeostasis, its homeostatic functions, and therefore can be self-injurious. But when we get our body back into a homeostatic function, that means health, growth, and restoration through our bodily functions, then we're calmer and more social. So you just mentioned anxiety and stress, but I've been wanting to ask you for a really long time, how does depression fit into the model? You're going to get me talking in multiple directions. And so <laughs> we have to go slowly on this because depression is a psychiatric diagnosis. Right. So let's just start that. And depression is not a, let's say, a psychological interpretation of depressed behavior. Depression as being a psychiatric disorder has a complex uh, set of symptoms or features or diagnostic criteria. And often being anxious is a component of being depressed. Now, in terms of, of the observer saying, if I'm anxious, I'm mobilized. If I'm depressed, I'm shutting down. But depression is really another way of saying it is that it's a disrupted autonomic nervous system because your body doesn't have the capacity to self-soothe, calm, and to regulate. And in fact, in our own research, which is still going on, on the autonomic characteristics of depression, basically their vagal system, this newer mammalian vagal system, isn't functioning real well. And so what I hear you saying is depression is actually the consequence of your nervous system being overloaded with stress and anxiety for a period of time. Well, let's make it even simpler. Let's say that we have some very basic foundational survival oriented circuits in our brainstem and they have not too many faces. You know, they can be mobilized, they can shut down, they can be smiling and engaging you know, with prosodic voices. So we can be welcoming, accessible, or we can be a threat aversive, or we can kind of like get out of there, disappear. Yeah. So depression sits on top of those circuits. Mm. So when those circuits aren't working right, we have higher brain structures. A lot of, we have a lot of, in a sense, brain space to, to create problems. The brain stems, <laughs> the brain's, 
brainstem's not very big. So virtually every psychiatric disorder has the, has the a common picture or common set of features in the brainstem, meaning that your autonomic nervous system is destabilized. You don't regulate your state. You don't feel calm. You're not able to be accessible to others. You're not convincingly authentic. Right. You, yeah. So basically, it's so intuitive, but you have to conceptualize the brain as an inverted triangle with the brainstem in the bottom. The brainstem's not taking care of its business, which is regulating our homeostatic functions. Everything above it is going to be adjusting to the signals that are being generated by the brainstem. Fix the brainstem, then there's opportunities for these higher level circuits to, let's say, be uh, more regulated. So that brings me to another question I wanted to ask you, and that comes from an article, a beautiful article that you and your wife, Sue Carter, wrote. It's from Complementary and Integrative Treatments in Psychiatry, and it's chapter 20, Polyvagal Theory and the Social Engagement System. So I feel like this, this chapter is just an amazing mm. chapter and easy to understand. But in that chapter, you said trauma has a connection to the subdiaphragmatic area mm. and that it's through our higher level social engagement through pranayama, through chanting, through mm. smiling, watching the corners of your eyes crinkle a little bit, you know, through that social engagement system that we can actually kind of bring ourselves out of that subdiaphragmatic area. Can you talk mm. about that? Yeah. So we have to, again, go back to the brainstem. The brainstem, as we talked about, this social circuit that you're, that's very pranayama-centric or oriented enables us to deal with what I would say is the hierarchy of autonomic states. And really what the hierarchy is, is really the evolutionary transitions, the sequencing that occurred through evolution, because our body reacts as if we're going through evolution in reverse. So we have the newer circuit, which is the safe social circuit, but under a threat or demand, that circuit gets dampened and that facilitates a mobilization fight-flight circuit. But if fight-flight doesn't work, there's even an older circuit underneath that, which is a shutting down circuit. So the shutting down circuit in our brainstem is still active, but its main function when it's not in a state of defense is to regulate all the organs below the diaphragm. So what does that mean? It means that the functioning of the organs below the diaphragm occur well when we are getting signals that we're safe, which means that that social engagement calm state is telling that older dorsal vagus, everything's fine. And what that does is it allows the enteric nervous system and also the other organs that are influenced by the dorsal vagus to do their job. Now in the world, of yoga, you have a lot of uh, women who come in with pelvic floor type issues. Yeah. And and in fact, if you were to in a sense do x-rays or stuff, you start seeing internal organs not lined up correctly. And that's in part because the subdiaphragmatic area has gotten cues of threat and that has interfered with the normal feedback loops that would maintain appropriate neuromuscular tone to the two diaphragms, the pelvic floor 
and what we call our diaphragm. So they're both diaphragms, and that's how you know abdominal breathing works. We can do literally exercise pelvic floor activity through breath, but also pelvic floor is very sensitive to posture shifts. So you can reflexively engage it, and these would be neural exercises. So much of yoga of subdiaphragmatic areas could be conceptualized as neural exercise. The take-home point here is that the subdiaphragmatic area is regulated in humans by the most ancient vagal circuit. And that circuit does great things. It works really well unless it gets triggered into states of threat. And you will find comorbidities. So as a, as a yoga therapist, it's not that people have subdiaphragmatic problems. They can have irritable bowel, they can have you know, pelvic floor, they can have sexual problems, they can have chronic gut pains. They're going to have other comorbidities that you will rapidly pick up on. And that is, mm. they may be carrying trauma history with them. They may not be breathing correctly. Their bodies may be constricted and defensive. Their voices may be may lack intonation and prosodic features, which is the melodic features of voice. Their faces may look to be relatively flat. They may not make good eye contact. They may not follow, be able to follow auditory or verbal instructions. They may be very sensitive to sounds around them and movement around them. They may be hypersensitive. So these become the portfolio of an individual who may be coming to you. And they're saying to yes. you, not any of those other issues, they're saying to you, it's subdiaphragmatic. And I'm saying, it's not that simple. There's a predictable portfolio that you can see. And that is a body under a state of threat and trying to literally do its job of protection. And its job of protection is interferes with its job of regulation. You know, most of my clients have chronic pain or autoimmune, and this is exactly yeah. what I yeah. see. Yeah. So my question to you is, you know, we talk about breathing, pranayama, maybe even chanting. A lot of people think that's happening in the upper, upper body, the face, the throat, the mouth. But my experience has been that I need to connect what's happening through the pranayama up here to the subdiaphragmatic yeah. area. Yeah. What do you think of that? Well, I think it's accurate and appropriate. And okay, so we can talk about polyvagal theory talks frequently about co-regulation and the role of sociality in sending cues of safety. But there's even a more foundational co-regulation, and that's the brain and the body. They are, have to communicate. And what you're really talking about is that the brain is getting re-embodied into the body. Right. And that's what yoga is about. That's what trauma therapy is about. And that should be, in a sense, the major agenda in, in, in the human curriculum. And that is stay in your body. And what it's really saying is the neural feedback loops that support homeostatic functions of growth, health, and restoration need to be preserved and respected. And our society doesn't. It says, dampen what your body's telling you. Don't listen to it. Sit still, do more work. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't listen. Just do your job. 
you know, looping back to our opening conversation, yeah. that's what I feel in academia. When I oh, go to yeah. campus, I, I feel like I'm under threat and, and I have to come home and reset my nervous system. It's a very interesting thing. Well, it's, it's not just interesting. It's a reality. Now let's talk optimistically for a moment. And that is our nervous systems are resilient. Yeah. that we can be under constant threat or let's say prolonged periods of threat during the workday. And we're fine if we have a few hours at home or with people that we trust. Mm -hmm. But if that tension is moved into the home and the body has no space or time to re-equilibrate, that will lead to chronic illness, chronic pain. So yeah, I will give you kind of like a hint uh, of what happened to me over the years. My basal heart rate used to be quite high for a male. It was, you know, it was like, it would be, it would be a rare day where my average heart, my, if I took my heart rate, it would be under 80. Now it's usually in the sixties or low sixties. So, you know, and that's because I now exercise, but I'm not under constant surveillance, constant threat. It's the world that we're in. And the issue is, if I knew more about polyvagal theory, I would have developed different strategies. Yeah. Like I would have, in a sense, had more neural exercises. And we have an intuition that we should have fun, we should relax. But the real question is, how do we relax when we have deadlines and responsibilities? So it, it's complicated. But if we, what I do now, is I was exercising every day, but my exercise routine started to get too long and it was interfering with what I like to do during the day. So I now exercise every other day, but it's two hours. Mm. And if I do it in the morning, I have this psychological feeling that I have permission to sit here for eight hours if I have to. I can sit and I don't get angry at myself for sitting or destroying my body. Because I did three miles on the elliptical, I lifted some weights, you know, I did these things. So I kind of like say, you did a good job. Now you can do this other stuff and you're not hurting yourself. So it's like giving yourself permission. And what I'm saying about for you on the academic campus, as long as you have those times to decompensate is a word I used to use over the decades, but basically, or I use another word, deafferent, where you just like throw away all the sensory information. Not that I could mm -hmm. do it, but I thought I should do that. I wanted to do that. If you have that, I can do it for a few hours. You have a home life, which is calm and not, not under tension. Then you can go back to the work without, in a sense, an expectation that threatening environment has any long lasting impact on you. In my own home life, given that my wife was an academic, it was like, well, it was like almost 24 seven at sometimes her grants, my grants, you know, mm -hmm. this, you know, kids, you know, so it was a long part of time. But what I also have learned is that like for my wife, writing grants and writing papers, that's her downtime. You know, that's, wow. that's, that's her, that's her knitting. That's her uh, uh, way of calming her body down. My way of calming my body down is to do something totally different, including watching worthless movies, movies that are <laughs> that you can't identify with a character. That that goes right through. That to me is relaxing, and I like novelty. I you know, like all human nervous systems. We like novelty, and novelty is part of our 
in a sense, desire to explore the world. And we're always in a dialectic between this search for novelty and violation of expectancy with our mm -hmm. fact that violation of expectancy is a trigger of threat. So, and so when we talk about boldness and not being bold, I think bold people kind of like the novelty of life and they can cope with the violation of expectancy. And when we, you know, of course, in the academic world, you start learning about people who want to be successful, but they can't deal with the evaluation and they can't deal with the public nature of the, of the profession, giving talks, uh, defending ideas, you know, being involved in national organizations. You know, they don't like the vulnerability of that accessibility. And so you start seeing people self-select. Yeah. When, when we initially thought the selection was solely on competence, mm -hmm. what I would say is selection is really about the tolerance of your nervous system and primarily the tolerance of your brainstem regulation of your autonomics, uh, which we can retranslate and say, are you willing to get sick or not? Are you willing to, uh, by doing your job, get ill. And in, in certain ways, we're asking people to do that. And so would you say, like, I had that exact experience as the president of IOIT. It was a very difficult time for me and my health psychologically and physically. And I just think I couldn't deal with the violations of neural expectancy. I, yeah. and would, would you say then that's probably because my autonomic nervous system was already a little bit unstable or out of balance and it just couldn't deal with that? Well, we want to not go through a blame, but we can tell you what happened to you. <laughs> okay, mm. so, so in a sense, your resilience is really based upon what state you're in. If your body's in more of a retuned state of threat, your resilience is minimal. And if we talk about the pandemic, yeah. For many of us, our, and I'm talking about myself, I use many of us, I'm one of those, our autonomic nervous systems have been retuned. Yeah. When we see people walking on the street, we, we grab our mask. You know, we feel the social cues that used to be uh, trigger uh, sociality and curiosity have now become cues of threat. The thought of getting on an airplane is adversive to me, and I haven't traveled since March 2020, and I was traveling once or twice a month, often internationally. So I know that I'm different than what I was two years ago, and in many ways, I'm not happy about that difference because to me, sociality and interacting with people was an important part of my life. Yeah. And when that starts taking on other visceral reactions, you know, you're in a sense in the wrong place. Could it also have been the opposite? Because I feel like this has been a two-year recovery for me where my nervous system actually got more in balance. So when I talk to my sister, my sister talks that way. <laughs> so my, my sister um, really has enjoyed much of the pandemic because she's more, I would say, reactive. And mm -hmm. so uh, the pandemic was a justifiable way of not interacting with others and she could titrate and she basically became a different person she became at least on the internet and she actually had visited me during the pandemic i would say much more regulated and much more co-regulatory in her nature 
So the answer is yes. So the, the part is, it may depend on the state you're in, I think, whether your body is used to not interacting with others. So for me, the social nourishment that I need as a human, I'm getting through interactions like this, but it's not the same. I Like I suggested, we go to a happy hour with a couple that we know well, and we're in North Florida, so it's, we can sit outside, there's no problem. So just not because I need to drink, have a drink or, or bar food. No, I need to, to interact a little bit. And my, my nervous system misses the interaction. And I wouldn't say that mine went through a healing during the period. I would say mine went through a retuning that is not exactly who I was before. And do you think for those people like myself or your sister that actually have maybe a more reactive nervous system, and this was much more pacifying and soothing to us. I see that with most of my clients who are in chronic pain and autoimmune Mm. that, you know, this social connection through zoom or whatever Mm. platform we choose, I actually see like, we can see each other's faces. We can see those Mm. eye crinkles. We can connect deeply through zoom, but it feels safe. Yeah. Well, I think we're, the uh, intervention we developed, the Safe and Sound Protocol, which worked extraordinarily well with hypersensitivities with kids, and when it was moved to helping people with trauma histories, the protocol had to be revised and slowed up because of the sensitivity of cues of safety or cues of intonation of voice, basically, to a person who carries a trauma history because calming becomes vulnerability. But what we learned because the company that is distributing developed a remote app. So it meant that people could get the therapy through Zoom or on their own, or basically was being monitored and managed by a therapist. And they often thrived. And many psychotherapists talk about the same way with their trauma clients. And that is that the client who has experienced severe adversity is safe in their home. Yeah. They don't have to get out and navigate in that world, go up the three flights of steps, sit in a reception office, and then try to calm down and get to a level of feeling safe for their session and then leave and go through that in reverse. Right. It's a lot on them when they just sit at home and they say, well, this is, we're making really good progress. And also feel like a failure because society tells us it's, like something's wrong with us if we can't do that, you know? Well, you know, this, the issue is what is the, it's like, what is the wisdom of society? Mm. And the wisdom of society is productivity. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and accumulation and of stuff and whatever the metaphor for accumulation is money or material objects or degrees. It's quite simple what society says. And it's quite unfulfilling. Yeah. So let's go back to your safe and sound protocol, because that's one of the reasons I really Mm. wanted to have you here, because I feel like we yoga therapists and even yoga teachers could really, really benefit Mm. from going through this training. And so I know there's three parts, there's connect core and balance. And I just wondered if you could give us an overview of this training. And let's go back to that brainstem area that regulates the 
nerves that control the muscles of the face and head and the a calming ventral vagal pathway. So, and this is very much linked to yoga. It's linked to pranayama yoga. It's even linked to, if we had a yoga of listening, it would be linked to that as well. That listening to uh, modulated sounds like human voice requires our nervous system to be outside of a threat zone. Because when we're under threat, our nerves regulate those middle ear muscles and we detect low frequency predator sounds or high frequency screeches and we have difficulty understanding voice and this is mirrored in our own voice so when we are under stress our voices are different our faces are different and our hearts are different the safe and sound protocol is all based upon that area of the brain stem that regulates the muscles the striated muscles the face and head including the middle ear muscles the laryngeal, pharyngeal, and the vagus down to the heart to calm us. So in a way, it is an acoustic vagal nerve stimulator. And in fact, when it got patented, that claim was warded. So it is legally on patent a acoustic vagal nerve stimulator. So what it does is it basically there's an ascending pathway where when we hear modulated sounds, it goes up to our auditory cortex. And if the sounds have like a mother's lullaby, you can see it in real time, visualize that crying baby. And how is the mother calming the baby? Is she yelling at the baby to stop crying? The father might, but is the mother doing that? No, the mother's going to use a, a infantile type of voice. If you're, puppy is a little bit skittish or uh, you talk to the, the puppy or the kitten the same way. They have middle ear structures very similar to ours and their frequency bands overlap. So what we're sending up is a cue through the modulation of the sound that everything is good. And that has a descending limb that goes down into the brainstem and increases the vagal control of the heart. It calms us down. And we actually have recently published a study using uh, my good friend Edtronic still face procedure, which is when the mother freezes her face and the baby starts getting very agitated. And then there's a recovery period where the mother starts to use her face again and talk and the baby calms down. And we looked at the baby's heart rate and also its agitation, its movement. If the mother's voice was more prosodic and more intonation in it, baby's heart rates went down. Mm-hmm. If the mother's heart rate didn't have it, the baby's heart rate didn't go down. And the similar curve with calming the baby. So it's wired into us that the intonation of voice downregulates threat. And it's wired into all mammalian species, except it's different frequencies based on the physics of their ear structures. So basically, the safe and sound protocol could be conceptualized as a stealth intervention. You're not seeing what it's doing. It just does it. Or as an acoustic vagal nerve stimulator, because that's where the wiring is. And so you're looking at the ascending limb of getting the information in and a descending limb of what that information does to that area of the brainstem that regulates those muscles. But the descending limb also affects the vagal regulation of the heart. So it becomes this kind of, I would say, efficient way of stimulating the vagus and calming us down through the use of acoustic stimulation. So it's kind of, if you think now in terms of pranayama yoga, and where initially everyone will think about breath, 
but there's more to pranayama yoga than breath. There are actually positions of pressing on the face. Mm. And those positions happen to be the sensory afferents that go directly to that brainstem area that regulate that ventral vagal complex. So it's like sound is a pathway, but so is contact. And if we want to go one step even further, there are commercial devices that are stimulating a branch of the trigeminal, which is the, you know, for chewing mm-hmm. and, uh, but there's a branch on the face and it's near the surface. It looks like a Band-Aid with a, it's mm-hmm. a Band-Aid electrode. And it, it does everything that a vagal nerve stimulator does. Now, why and how does it do it? It does the same thing. It goes to that brainstem area that regulates that ventral vagus. So uh, and the reason I brought it up is what do people often do? They rub their foreheads. Yeah. And what do you do to your puppy? You rub the, you're basically rubbing the carotids. You're rubbing with our many vagal afferents. So we're doing vagal stimulations in ways that we never thought of. And there are in the ear also, you know, there's a whole area called auricular therapies. And that is, you know, used to be viewed as auricular acupuncture as being Mm. something that's way out there. Well, that area now overlaps with auricular neuromodulation therapies like non-invasive vagal nerve stimulators that are actually using the afferents of the ear. So what was viewed as alternative is now basically mainstream biomedical research now. It's interesting about the convergence of observations. Yeah, I'm just thinking about pranayama. You know, sometimes we are bringing the focus to the nostrils. Sometimes we're bringing it to the throat in like ujjayi. And then sometimes we're bringing it to the mouth with like Mm -hmm. shikili. So there's, you know, at least three different areas Mm -hmm. that we're using in pranayama. So I, when when I start to think about pranayama, I went back to the 12 year old in me. And when I was uh, practicing the clarinet, Mm-hmm. For my teenage years, I was still practicing and I was still doing it. And I started to think about embouchure, which is the muscles around the mouth, mm-hmm. listening and breath. So I was yeah. going through that and I realized, and this is in my own, uh, I would say my own narrative of what it was that kind of enabled me to be who I am. I would say playing the clarinet and doing the practicing that I did, because what was I doing during the practice? I was doing long, slow exhalations. I was listening to the feedback. I was maintaining the muscle tone. And this I would do for, you know, it would be over an hour a day of practice. Now, I was reasonably good, so there was a lot of, you know, I would say reinforcement on that. But I think it had a great effect on my resilience as a human being to have that, literally that ballast in the system, literally my system was to have that regulatory component functioning well. Beautiful. It also reminds me of Vedic chanting where you have a teacher and a student and the teacher, you have to listen so carefully to hear what they're saying. And then you have to find one of the five positions in the mouth to repeat mm-hmm. it. And it, you know, it goes back and forth for an hour. So yeah. very similar. Yeah. So I, you know, as you were talking about the safe and sound protocol and, you know, the mechanism through which it works, mm. how do you think that compares, whether it's an auditory stimulus or, you know, electron on your forehead in a different scenario to true social engagement with another stable nervous system? 
Well, it's what I like to say now, and this is, you know, we're now talking about it's almost 30 years since it developed the theory. I now like to say sociality is a neuromodulator. And that is the story of our evolutionary journey. It's how sociality became a primary way of regulating our physiological state and supporting our health, growth, and restoration. And so, yeah, I think it fits in very closely with that. Um, I just think that our society thinks of sociality as optional. Mm. You know, we think about school systems. They minimize social behavior within the, the school, within the time, because they think it's detracting or taking up the time of cognitive exercise, cognitive advance. And they should be thinking of it as building the resilience of the state regulatory capacity that enables individuals to cooperate and to explore and to solve big problems. And in fact, you know, my degree is in educational psychology. We would go as far to say you actually can't learn the curriculum if you're not in that yeah. social engagement system. Yeah. Well, fortunately, there are now several educators who are coming on board and very interested in the theory and are actually active in developing course material. They're active in polyvagal in the Polyvagal Institute. And the issue when I talk to educators, I ask one basic question to the especially with their teachers. If behavioral state regulation wasn't a problem, what would your day be like? There you go. And then the next question is, how much were you taught about regulating the behavioral state of your students? 100%. And the issue is, of course, they're told that it's uh, uh, intentional, so ABA should work. And of course, it's that's actually one of the things that APA is not really good for. So it's like when you try to downregulate a emergent behavior, operant techniques don't seem to be very good. If the behavior is a low frequency behavior and you want more of it, operant works reasonably well. So it's again a misunderstanding of what the behaviors are coming from. They're coming, they're basically emerging from the bodily state and not the intentional level or parts of the cortex that map out scripts of behavior. You know, it makes me think of teachers who are completely dysregulated, but also yoga therapists. Like, I don't think we can actually offer proper yoga therapy if we are living in a dysregulated state. Well, I think you're absolutely correct. I was just on yesterday and on today with therapists in Poland mm-hmm. who are trying to deal with, you know, the mass of refugees coming in. And I basically said, you can't deliver therapy if as a therapist, your body's destabilized. You will be conveying your fear, your threat to your client. And they're very concerned about dealing with refugee, basically children and the parents of children. And I said, the first thing is the therapist has to be regulated, which is your point. Second one is the mother has to be regulated because she's going to be conveying her fears and her threats right to her infant or child. So our bodies, first of all, in many situations, like in, in, in Ukraine, in Poland, the threats are real. Mm-hmm. The pandemic, the threats were real. So we, that's the first level of acknowledgement. They're real and they get into our body or we could say our body reacts to them. And we come up with all kinds of narratives. We say we're stressed out, we're scared, we're this. Our body's in this state 
that has a whole portfolio of predictable features when we are in a state of threat. We're not accessible, we don't listen, we're not co-regulatory, and we're not supporting the functions of our bodily organs. And we're not supporting each other. So we can see all these things occurring. So we have to, in a sense, get to the primacy. And the primacy is these are foundational survival circuits that are on a quest for cues of safety. And is it even possible? I mean, I look at President Zelensky and he seems somewhat relaxed and stable and calm. Is that even possible in that situation? Well, I okay. So the, if, if we even get into the horrors of horrors, like the concentration camps during World War II, there were people in it, uh, like the Viktor Frankl book. Mm-hmm. I think in reading that, you realize that under threat, the angels show themselves. So when I was developing polyvagal theory, it was very, started off almost deterministically. It was like when there is threat, the body changes. And then I had to be reminded about Viktor Frankl and say, the stress and threat are not outside, them, they're inside the body. So we tend to want to attribute them to be outside so we can take them away, but they get embodied and that is the real issue. And sometimes these horrendous cues of life threat are not internalized. That's a word that is frequently used, but they don't enter into our neural organization. For some people, the problem we live with is that if some people are so resilient and buffered and they get through things, they're not necessarily understanding of the other who is fragile and gets destabilized. And the other part is we're not always, we may be that resilient person one day and then something else happens. And this is happening to people who have long COVID. They were, before they got it, extremely resilient people. Now they are walking around with a nervous system that's on edge. It doesn't have resource. So they are different, not because they have long COVID, they are different because the nervous system is retuned to a chronic disorder and not an acute disruption. And I, I think in many of these situations, the safe and sound protocol would yeah. be very, very helpful. Well, here is the contradiction. Okay. The body has to be ready or prepared to be safe. So that if you carry with you a severe trauma history, and this again reflects into the world of trauma therapy, that if you carry a severe trauma history, cues of safety are disarming. Mm -hmm. But for a person who carries that trauma history, that disarming and accessibility is translated into vulnerability and defensiveness. So an example is a person who carries with them adversity history, listens to the safe and sound protocol, their body opens up, they start to do that. And suddenly through the interoception, their feedback that their body is relaxed, their brain interprets it and they go ballistic because now they're vulnerable. Yeah. So we start understanding the adaptive function of being hypervigilant and defensive. Now the astute trauma therapists see this and what they end up doing is extraordinarily slow titrations and yeah. using those physiological feelings that are elicited to talk about. So the person starts to become aware of, to respect and to honor 
and basically to turn off the high sensitivity to their defenses. And this is how virtually all effective trauma therapies work. They basically separate the feeling from the assumed event that is a trigger. So yeah. they say, look, it's okay to be mobilized. We do that when we play, but it's not okay to be mobilized, angry, and scared of the word. I think that's a wonderful place to end because that's what we as yoga therapists hope to offer. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I, I like. I, before we close, what I'd like to say is, in the world of yoga therapy, there may be a place, a synergistic utility of the safe and sound protocol as people go along their therapeutic journey. And that is it may be used as a tool to bring people into different states to titrate the state. So the safe and sound protocol started off with this really uh, filtered music of hyper prosodic nature in which the brain could not say no. And that's what we say, I'm safe, no, I'm not safe. So then it got through the feedback with, in a sense, people with severe adversity. We developed a milder form called the SSP balance. Mm. Uh, and then they to develop even greater familiarity with the music, SSP Connect, which is unfiltered. So we can start building expectancy by using SSP Connect, where you now listen to music, it becomes familiar. SSP Balance, where there's a milder modulation, and then SSP Core, where there's much more uh, aggressive or severe modulation. So it's, it's a toolkit. But something else we've learned, we learned that some people with severe adversity history, just listening to music, which is prosodic in its nature, is enough to trigger. Mm. And that tells you, I mean, we're talking about off the shelf, popular music. We're not talking about anything that is heavily you know, loud or rhythmic or frequency range. What we are learning is about the sensitivity of the nervous system, the individual differences to, in a sense, embedded cues of safety, let alone hyper uh, amplified cues of safety. Amazing. Mm. Amazing. So, so I think there are two parts of this that the trauma, or let's say the yoga therapist, might think of it as the safest sound protocol as a way of self regulating themselves or right. you know coming back to to a sense of balance in themselves or they might think of it as uh preparing their clients for the yoga manipulations that they're doing so they might there are several somatic therapists use it for like 10 minutes in the beginning of every session mm. and this may be something that yoga therapists may find useful as well well I, for one, am going to take the training. I'm very interested in this, and I think it's another great tool in our yoga therapy toolbox for ourselves and for our clients. So. Yeah, talking to the company this morning, and I mentioned that could have a third or, or a different protocol, which we could call SSSP, safe, sound, and social protocol, and where it was delivered in groups. And I told them that when I initially developed it, I was doing it in quartets with kids. And the social interaction of the children was a facilitator. 
which goes back to your earlier question. So in the world of yoga, it, it might even be something that could be done on, on a Zoom group. Amazing. I vote for that. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Dr. Porges. As you can see, my electricity went out. I'm not sure why, but I'm happy that I'm able to finish this call oh, with you. Yeah. Did you see how everything I went saw dark? that. Yeah. <laughs> so I have no electricity. Physically, but where are you? I'm in Southern California, up in the mountains, in a cabin in the woods. Okay. I live out in a very rural area. And so this happens occasionally where our electricity just decides to go out. So, yeah. well, wishing you luck. Um, it's it's not too warm, so you're not going to heat up there. Without, we, have a, we have a wood stove, so okay. we'll be okay. But okay. Thank you so much. This is such an honor to get to speak with you. And I look forward to this uh, PVI class that Lisa Sullivan and I are creating for your institute. So I look forward to seeing it as well. Anyway, listen, nice to meet you face to face. Thank you you so much. You're welcome. Have a good day. Bye-bye. I'm feeling ecstatic right now because I had so many of my long-term clinical questions answered in this episode, everything from where does depression fall in the polyvagal theory to, you know, this idea of actually doing pranayama with your entire body. This is how we do it in the Krishnamacharya yoga mandram that on the exhalation, oftentimes if we're working in that subdiaphragmatic area, we'll actually engage the the abdomen a little bit, or maybe even the pelvic floor. So it's not a true mula bandha or uddiyana bandha. It's it's more of a gentle massaging, lifting, gently pulling in, especially on the exhalation phase of the breath. And that whenever we go into say a forward bend or a twist, the mind is actually integrated into the body saying, okay, gently pull in, maybe pull up. And the mind and the breath and the body are all three going in the same direction. And I found that to be super, super effective with my clients. And that's what we we teach our yoga therapists in training, how to do that. And then similarly, when we inhale, we're really expanding the chest, the sides of the rib cage, the upper back, maybe into a back bend or a lateral bend and bringing the mind into the chest area and and using the mind and the breath and the body all going in the same direction to feel more expansive, triggering more of that kind of social engagement system in the upper body. So it's really interesting to me to see how our Krishnamacharya yoga is exactly what they're talking about in polyvagal theory, and that we actually have tools and technologies to consciously do this bringing the mind and the breath and the body all into one area for compression or in the upper body expansion. So I just had a wonderful time, this interview, I'm sure I'm going to listen to it many, many times and continue to let it percolate to, to find more questions that I have. I hope you enjoyed it. Stephen Porges was so generous with us. I hope you will consider taking his safe and sound protocol. I know that's on my my list of things that I'm going to do for myself and for my clients. I think it's a great adjunct to being a yoga therapist and even a yoga teacher. So thank you so much for listening and we will see you soon.
Hey, did you know that each week on the podcast, we give you a free infographic that you can use with your clients, your students, or for your own personal studies. So check out the show notes. There's a link on where you can sign up. And not only will we send you the infographic from this week, but if there's a topic that's similar in the future, we'll also put you on that list and we'll never sell your data or send you things that you haven't asked for. Thank you for listening to our show today. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share the episode with a friend or colleague. We're so grateful you're willing to share. Also, you could write us a review on most major platforms that host podcasts. Give us five stars if you appreciate the show and tell us what you love so that we can do more of that. Finally, we support several nonprofit organizations through this podcast. See the show notes to understand how you can help. If you'd like to be a guest or a sponsor for this program, contact us at the email welcome at theoptimalstate.com. Welcome at theoptimalstate.com. And finally, a special thank you to our team here at Optimal State. We are truly a global family. George Mantuan, one of our executive producers. Adam Satchel, senior media producer and sound engineer from the Philippines. Krishna Panchal, a producer from Canada. Modupe Abdullahi, who does the show notes and is an editor for us from Nigeria. And Peter Morley, who wrote and produced the music for this show, who lives in Australia. Find more about Peter's work at www.zenmusic.biz. Thank you for listening.
We'll see you next time.